Hey, what's up? It's episode 94, Pain Points of Wealth, and we got a really special episode today. We have my good friend on the podcast, Rich Antonello. He's a former CEO and founder of Complex Media, a company that was recently just merged with BuzzFeed. And you know, Rich talks a lot about the entrepreneurship journey, how he came from humble beginnings back in Brooklyn, how it colored his view of finances, and just about the state of the financial services industry in general. It's a really great in-depth interview. Rich is a really charismatic guy. He's got a really cool take on things. I think you're really going to like it. Check it out. Hit the music. Welcome to the Pain Points of Wealth, the podcast that addresses the pain points that come with creating, growing, and sustaining your wealth, giving you a multi-generational perspective from three pains in a pod. Bob Payne, the boomer, Chris Payne, the millennial, and Ryan Payne, the generation somewhere in between. So Rich, you know, close friend of mine, great, thanks for doing the podcast today. And, you know, I thought we'd start with the beginning. You're the real deal from Brooklyn, uh, Canarsie, Marine Park. You know, what was it like growing up in the, I guess, the, really the 80s in Brooklyn, 70s, 80s? Well, I mean, look, there's, it's not just the location, but really you have to think about especially within the context of this conversation, you have to think about the cultural side, the familial side, right? So both of my parents were immigrants. I'm like first gen on top of it. So my mom's one of nine, my dad is one of eight. So literally big families, both depression kids, neither one education was not big on either side of my family because they couldn't afford to think about it that way. So then you layer on the neighborhood is almost secondary because there's a, like, it just happens to be a lot of cohorts like that. But I mean, look, it's a beautiful place to live if you want to grow up around neighbors and neighborhoods where they are part, where it's basically extended family. Now, the difference is you live a very small life because the exposure that I used to have and again, no, this is no shots or disrespect to anybody, but it was a lot of cops, a lot of firemen, union jobs. My dad was a UPS delivery guy. The aperture of what you're knowledgeable about and what you see, there's very few executives, very few financial guys, the industries, like you're, my exposure to business was trying to like maybe reading a Wall Street Journal. And by the way, the Wall Street Journal never made it into my house because that's not, it wasn't the thing. But, you know, my dad read like the Daily News, Newsday, things like that. But I think the, it was a great thing in that you learned foundational values because you couldn't operate within that world in any other way. These were really good people, but the view of ambition and even understanding what a floor and a ceiling would be like from a career perspective was just nowhere. And you gotta remember, I couldn't Google it back then either. And the library, had a whole bunch of like old biographies. So, and it was great to be able to go read about like Rockefeller, but it wasn't exactly what I would call inspirational from the standpoint of understanding what a blueprint or a track would be from a realistic perspective for somebody like me. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting point because, you know, in our household, you know, Bob did read the Wall Street Journal <laughs> and all we had business was around us. You know, Bob, you were more of an entrepreneur really, and you're thinking all the time, like, and obviously, Rich, you went a pure entrepreneurial track. So, you know, how did it even happen? Not really at first. I, luckily enough, I had so little knowledge of an entrepreneur or what venture capital or any of those things were 
that I literally, all I wanted to do is get out of my neighborhood so badly and not get away from the people, but just not live that life, not watch my parents fight over being able to pay an electric bill or a water bill or a gas bill. Like that was just a very big motivational thing for me. Like I was never going to be in that situation, but I didn't know anything. So I knew I had to build foundational blocks. So what I did, and I was lucky enough to go, you know, to a state school with like a lot of scholarships and be in a situation where I came out and I wanted very corporate jobs because I knew I needed exposure. I knew I needed to learn how to think. I wanted to be around different groups of people. And working at the largest advertising agency in the world, Saatchi and Saatchi, was my first job. Then moving over to CBS Radio, moving over to Men's Journal and Winner Media, and then working at National Geographic. Like all of those were foundational stepping stones, not just of people high-level executives, large-scale brands that allowed me to kind of like fill in my common sense uh, foundational blocks that I learned at home. But with the corporate experience, that enabled me to be more effective and then take the jump to become an entrepreneur later. And by the way, there's another layer to that as well. There's the experience side, but also because of where I came from, like a lot of entrepreneurs, at least in t- like previously, 15, 20, 30 years ago, were funded by friends and family and like people who had a lot of money. I didn't have any of that. So I needed to create my own, you know, floor or net underneath myself, as well as build the experience blocks. And I know it sounds very deliberate. It was more of like, I was doing all of that on the fly. I was very aware and cognizant. I wasn't anywhere near as intelligent of like, oh, well, let me lay it out this way. And then I'm going to go do that. I wish it was looking back. I just made a lot of very good decisions through the whole process. So I actually owe a lot of my career to a guy named Jeffrey Goldberger, who was my accounting professor, my cost accounting professor, which by the way, wasn't, I don't know if you guys ever took it. I'm sure you did, but like, it's not just accounting, but it's the worst part of accounting is cost accounting, like the worst class you could possibly take debits and credits and understanding balance sheets and like, ugh. I mean, it's really important stuff, but it's gross, right? Like, it's just terrible. And I was very good friends with a guy named John Raniolo, who was like one of my best friends. And we were in a lot of classes together and we took Goldberger together. We're both in the School of Management. And I go to him at the end. We just took our finals. This was back in the day they didn't post. You'd go to your professor and get your grades, right? Like, this is like, by the way, I know that like everyone's like, what? Like, that's, but that's the way this was. So we would go, I went and with John and we rolled into Goldberger's office and he's like, oh, do you want to like do this one-on-one? Like, no, he's like, no, we're friends. We're like, whatever. It's like, and he goes, Rich, you are not an accountant. And I'm like, I bombed the final. I'm sorry I cursed. But like, I was like, holy crap. I'm like, he goes, no, 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 no. You didn't bomb the final. He goes, you got an A on the final. You got an A minus in the class. You just killed it. He goes, but you are not an accountant. He goes, you will be miserable. He goes, it is not aligned with your skill sets. And it was one of the first times I heard the phrase, just because you're good at something doesn't mean you should do it for a living. By the way, the funny part of the story, he turns to John, he goes, John, you are an accountant. And John goes, oh, I finally goes, eh, not really. He goes, you did okay. But he goes, you, my friend, are an accountant. Ironically, he's also a CFO of a small, of one of the Tiger hedge fund like things. So, but Binghamton, by the way, was a humongous accounting school. It's the only thing it's really good for from a feeder business perspective, not only, but it's the primary, been the primary driver. It used to be the big six, 
the big five, then the big four. But Goldberger changed my life because if I didn't have that conversation with him, I don't know if I would have had the foundational confidence because of my lack of exposure to business and executives. Like I just thought like, well, maybe all business sucks and it's just something you have to do to get through to make money because I didn't have anybody to talk to about it. But he gave me the confidence to go, wait a second, I need to think about it in a more dynamic way and think about different dynamic businesses where I can take my personal strengths and personality and apply it in that way and make a bigger difference for myself and for the company. Well, you know, I found since I had some experience with corporate America, they kind of build a, a gilded cage. So you get very comfortable. You have a, you know, there's a path to success. It's kind of guaranteed, you know, there's no risk to staying. How did you have the guts to leave all that and to start your own thing? Well, I mean, it's funny and both my parents passed away, but I think it's an important thing. I wasn't just fighting my own potential insecurities. My parents were like, what are you insane? You don't leave companies like this. Like, you know, it's like my dad was a UPS guy for 30 years, right? Like you didn't make changes. You didn't leave good jobs. So I had to fight both the corporate side. When I got, I was at National Geographic at the time and I got this opportunity and I, all my corporate friends, I mean, these were guys, you, they were working three, four, five hours a week, making very good money with a big brand and the overhang and the safety of that. Like, and I never felt comfortable to be honest with you. Like, this is how I really knew. I never felt comfortable. I felt insecure. I didn't have imposter syndrome. I had the opposite of it. I couldn't believe we were getting paid this much money to do this little and take this little risk and be not be innovative. And it was like, I used to make the joke of, you know, like National Geographic has a lot to do with animals. And you know, like how elephants die, like they hang out together. And then when they are ready to die, they walk off. Like, I'm like, when you're ready to die corporately, you walk off and start working at Nat Geo. It's where your brain dies. Yeah, you see it with corporate people. I've been there forever. They're so institutionalized. It's actually a kind of a wild thing. I never felt comfortable. Like, thankfully, I worked on a startup there. Like, so I was an entrepreneur. Like, again, a lot of these things lucked out. Like, I took this job because my former ad director at Men's Journal went over to be the publisher at Adventure Magazine, which was launching within. But I didn't realize, like, I got the corporate protection and overhang and budgets of Nat Geo. And then I got the experience of starting something from ground zero. And then I was like, well, wait a second. If you pull off the corporate overhang and those budgets, that's like pulling the training wheels off. I kind of felt like I was ready to ride my own bike. And literally, like, I know that sounds like a, I, and again, not intentional, but it's more of a backward looking thing. But I think subconsciously, that's the way I was feeling at the time. Yeah. I think we can relate to that because, I mean, that's how we start our business, too. It's kind of like, you know, we worked at the big firm. We knew what it was like to have those training wheels. And you're like, well, these training wheels aren't that good anyway. Well, in fact, they might be taking you the wrong way and they're not standing you up properly. A lot of my friends that are still in the big wirehouses, they think they're entrepreneurs. But you're not an entrepreneur until you sweat a payroll or a loan that you're thinking, man, I took this loan out. How am I ever going to pay it back? Or investors' money, right? You said, oh, I cannot lose their money. And if you're not up at three, four o'clock in the morning sweating that out, you're not truly an entrepreneur. And I tried to tell those guys and they're like, no, no, really, I'm an entrepreneur. I work on commission. I said, nah, that's not how it works. <laughs> oh, God. First of all, I'm going to even go a step further. Like if not to just use that, if that sleep at night thing is the perfect thing. I like when you're an entrepreneur, 
you're not an entrepreneur if you go to sleep and you're worried about losing your job. You're an entrepreneur when you go to sleep and the decisions you make go, I not only put myself out, forget about that, but I put all these families out. So when I make a mistake, that's the definition of an entrepreneur. Like, by the way, working on commission is like the first step of like a thousand steps you have to take. That is not risk, by the way. That's like normal life. That's a bunch of crap in my book. Like that is not, I couldn't agree with you more. Every salesperson thinks they can be the CEO, especially when they're having a good month. Every salesperson thinks they can do everything. Which makes them great salespeople. <laughs> you look, salespeople are, it's the only division in your company that can help overcome every other fault. However, there's only so long that can happen. You know, in the beginning, you need to disproportionately be pulled along by sales as either a proof point or punching above your weight. But at the end of the day, that doesn't sustain the long term and you need to be cognizant of it. And that's where also like the greatest thing happens is a lot of the salespeople, like the great entrepreneurial oriented salespeople in the beginning don't scale because what they don't understand is they never backfill. Like they don't make the process repeatable. The better as a salesperson you are, usually the worst of a trainer and a manager you are. It's like, you know, it's why Ted Williams was a horrible manager of baseball because he couldn't understand. What do you mean you can't tell the difference the, the minute the ball comes out of the pitcher's hand that it's like not a curveball or a fastball? Oh, you mean not everybody has 20-10 vision and the best hand-eye coordination in the world and the confidence that, it, oh, you mean everybody shouldn't be that way? Yeah. Larry Bird's the same way, Rich. Larry Bird was a horrible manager because he couldn't understand why they just couldn't get the mechanics down like he had or the work ethic that he had. And, you know, just couldn't communicate and players didn't respond to it. If you look at it, the best managers are all people who probably topped out at single, let's just use baseball, but single A, double A. So like the love of the game was there and they had to be so strong foundational because of the lack of talent that they had to put processes in place, that they had to be more repeatable, that they had to figure out how to make it applicable across the board. Right. And it's interesting but at different times, it's the ratios. I always call it, sorry to really go into the entrepreneurial side of things, but in the beginning of a company, you want about 80% innovators, 20% iterators. And then as the company matures, that starts to balance out. And then as you become really mature, you still need like 20, you never want to go more, like especially in this day and age with the iteration of the company that is necessary, that is driven by original innovation, you want to always have about 20 to 25% worst case scenario floor of innovators, but you do that ratio, you still need really good iterators. And that is a completely different skill set. Yeah, it really is. Which well, is a switch gears a little bit, you know, talk a little bit about the psychology of money. I mean, obviously your financial circumstances have changed drastically from your humble roots in Brooklyn. And like, how's that changed your perception of money and, and how is it kind of the same just because of your upbringing? Because I think, you know, the way we were brought up really, really does color the way that we view our financial situation, financial security, and really a lot of the decisions we make around money. Well, let's pull a string on that and like make a delineation. It's not, my perception has changed completely. However, my behaviors have not come all the way along. You know, I'm massively aggressive. I'm, you know, like I understand so much more and I kind of see the thing. But honestly, there's that little voice in the back of my head that always pulls me back from being as aggressive at the edge that I'd like to be. 
and you know, I said this to you before, Ryan, in some of our conversations is I'd love to sit there and be that guy who's like, you know what? Like when a sector is booming, let's take 30, 40% of a portfolio and go crazy. And like, I could never do that. I just can't do it fundamentally. And no, I do think it's wrong. It's wrong for 99% of people, but there will be the one or two people that will do it and not only do that, but time it appropriately, like understand it and be that hero, that crazy story, right? The biggest problem that I have in the financial sector is the norms don't get written about as much. It's always the aberrations. The aberrations, by the way, take aberration. What is the one thing about math? And you know, I'm like a crazy numbers guy, right? So for me, everything is about numbers. What do you do when you think about aggregates or telling a true story or letting the mean versus the median and all these things? What you do is you throw out the aberrations on both sides. Smart math people do that. But by the way, what do journalists do or coverage or even social media in this day and age? It's all about the aberrations, the extremes. Like it's the worst thing we do for financial literacy in this country because you don't talk about the aberration and insane circumstances or certain personalities. You have to talk about what most people will be able to do, what they have an appetite for. Like, it just baffles me. Like, look, I've been very lucky. And this is probably the first time I've said this out loud. But I think about this. I came out in 1993, which was one of the worst job markets in the world. So I took a job at Saatchi and Saatchi making $20,000 a year with no overtime. $263.38 was my paycheck. And I'll never forget that number, ever. You know, I got to the point where I was making that like at once every like minute, like for a minute, like whatever. It was like, you know, my point there was though, is it came out in that horrible market. We had the correction of 2000, 2001 from an internet perspective, but people forget right after that, we had 9-11 which I know it was an indirect, but that had a cultural overlay to everything as well. Then you had the great financial crisis and people have somehow kind of turned the page on possibly the scariest thing that's happened in this country from a financial perspective since, or is even closely correlated to the great depression. None of us experienced that, but from stories, people forget the run on the banks, the we were sitting there questioning, is our money going to be worth anything? Like all these other like recessions, nobody's even come close to that. I wonder if people were so ignorant during that time that they never truly understood how bad that actually was. Like they watched Too Big to Fail as like a fictional journey. And I'm like, this was no fictional journey. And the people that do understand still have, I think, a hangover. And it's why people have gotten so conservative. But like, we kept getting punched in the face, my generation, and especially like that, like Gen X. It's just, it was all of our key times of making money or like our key times of investments. We just kept getting the rug pulled from under us at the wrong time when things were supposed to level up and whatever. And I actually think that if I had been as aggressive as my personality, without that fear factor of, that my parents put in, it allowed me to not get hurt as badly during those rug pulls as a lot of my other cohorts. And what's ironic is a lot of them started out well ahead of me, whether their parents subsidized their rents or bought them apartments, which I knew a ton of people 
had portfolios, mini trust funds, things like that. They lost it all. And it's almost like, not to make a correlate back, and this is where I'd love to hear what you guys think about this, is because of my circumstances, I was forced to educate myself and bring a level of discipline. Not, let me give you my money and like, no, 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 you handle it for me. Hey, Rich, this goes way back to when Ryan first started in the industry, and we would always have this debate. Who's the better advisor? Is it better to have an old dog like me with gray hair and scar tissue and the stomach lining and all that experience, or to have a, a new advisor who's enthusiastic and optimistic and thinking of new ideas? And we'd always go back and forth. The answer is always both. And the answer actually is, as long as you have an advisor, because we all have a certain personality. And I think it's what a good advisor does is sort of like a governor on your personality. And I at one time had a significant, almost all my net worth invested in Maryland stock. And, you know, it was a hundred year old company. I grew up there. It was the greatest company I've ever experienced in my life. And one day my 21 year old son said, Hey dad, I don't understand. You teach everybody to diversify and it applies to every client we work with, except for you. And that saved my life because if he hadn't said that, it would have never dawned on me that I was taking enormous risk because I saw a blue chip stock. I wasn't in a tech stock. It was a blue chip stock paying a great dividend. It had a low cost basis, and I sold every share because I had an advisor. Can I interject here? That stock basically went to zero, and I should probably get a larger part of the inheritance. But anyway, I digress. Well, Ellie gave me a grandson, so you were there. You and Chris are out. Liam's in. <laughs> <laughs> I think we just got skipped a generation. That's right. That's right. I mean, look, it's the way I look at it is I look at it like whether it's financial advice, like personal advice, whatever, it's almost like putting like a mini board together. It's not about finding one mentor. It's finding like a board of trusted people whose perspectives you respect and then go, which are the pieces that I like to put together a Frankenstein for myself? Like for me, it's, I'm not that smart. So I just, what I try and do is take everything and just make it as simple as possible for myself, irrespective of category, irrespective of sector, irrespective of discipline. Look, as markets become more and more volatile and the time periods are shorter, so the extremes are higher, that also means the skills or things that have been applicable in the past are less and less important. What's more and more important is thought process. So again, I think what people don't understand is, and it's the one thing I'll say is, there's two things in your life. There's more, but the two main things in your life that I've never seen, and you know, Bob, this is a perfect thing, for a guy who's so smart and in the industry, the two places where people are like the least, they educate themselves the least and advocate for themselves the least are their healthcare and their financial position. And by the way, it's the two things that is the easiest to do, number one, and the most essential. And I think I'm blown away, and it has nothing to do with money, class, education level, like it's irrespective. It's things people feel very uncomfortable advocating for themselves. I don't know why, I never did. But financially and healthcare wise are the two things where they need to get educated and they need to take control and be their, their greatest advocate, irrespective of who you work with. It is amazing to me that people just, whether they Google something or I heard something from this guy, like that becomes my mortgage broker or my finance. We, you didn't do any research. You didn't have any conversations. You don't even fundamentally understand the difference between fixed income, 
what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? And it blows me away how comfortable people feel that, about that. It all comes down to the educational system. We don't teach basic finance. These kids come out of university today with PhDs and they don't know how to balance a checkbook. They don't understand that they're paying interest on the credit card debt they have and they don't think that's a problem. But it's too late by the time it's at university level. That should start a lot earlier. Take fundamental math. Do you know how few people have the ability to think in three dimensions and think about calc and other? Calc should not be a fundamental thing. It is for 98% of biz, of forget about businesses, of careers, you will never use one ounce of calculus. Yet that is a fundamental course that every person who goes to college has to take. But to your point, I don't understand how at a junior high or at least a high school level, being able to run a household from an income statement and understanding what a balance sheet and an income statement would be, at least on a personal basis, is something that you should not be able to walk out of high school not understanding. You know, Rich, as a firm, we do a lot of marketing. We get a lot of prospective clients that come to kick the tires at paying capital every month. That's, you know, 50 different portfolios a month that we look at. Everybody makes the same mistakes. And maybe it's because their investments are sold. They're not bought for a lot of the folks that we look at. And it's also the reason why there's probably still tons of Ponzi schemes out there and scams because there is evil. Well, let's go back to that. Pull the string. And I bet you a lot of people don't even understand what you just said when they're sold, not bought. Like bought, not sold. But like explain that a little bit because I don't think most people even, they heard that and it sounds like a soundbite versus there's a lot there. Pull the string on that for a second. Well, I think that the person who says to me, why do you own this? What is it and, and what does it do? And they said, I don't know, but the person who sold it to me told me it was good. If I told you how many times I heard that, I got a nickel for every time, I'd be the wealthiest guy in the country. It's just that they don't look through the fancy brochure. And the problem is it's hard for investors to trust anyone, but unfortunately they're busy in their lives. So they end up just default trusting whatever that person tells them or sells them is the right thing to do. And it really drives me crazy because you just have to scratch the surface. You know, it's just, it's a, it's a very thin frame to get people to understand what they own and understand why they own it. I think that's what we do best as a firm is we educate our clients and we don't let anybody say, well, you know, you're the expert. If that's you think what I should do, go ahead and do it. Say, no, you're going to understand why we're going to do this. You're going to understand the risk involved in what we're doing and why it, you know, interrelates with all the other investments that you have. But I'm going to go a step further. I think it should be a two-way street. There's lots of things like a personal, somebody, like say somebody comes from my background, like, and I know this is going to make all you guys cringe, but you know what? Because of the conservative nature and that little voice in the back of my head, like 10 years ago, I was like, I want an insurance annuity. Bob is cringing, by the way, but go ahead. No, no, no. I, but you know what it did? Do you know what it did for me? It gave me a whole life insurance policy and a hedge and this other financial instrument later that I'd be able to take capital and that flexibility. And for me, that level of confidence and that flexibility of having mass mutual and their real estate portfolio behind that, like I didn't look at that money and that allocation as a growth vehicle. I looked at it as a security blanket. And as a ratio of my portfolio was very important to me that helped me sleep, quote unquote, a little bit better. And it allowed me to then look at the rest of my portfolio and potentially tweak it at my age to be more aggressive because I had that foundation already. Now, I know a lot of the clients aren't that sophisticated, but my point is, is you want 
a financial advisor who's like, I advise against it. I understand what you're saying. Now let me reallocate the rest based on the decisions that you're comfortable with on the other side of things. Well, you know, Rich, this is the first time in my career that someone actually owns an annuity for the right reason, knows why they own it. 99.999% of all the other annuities were sold to somebody who has no clue what they own and <laughs> thinks it's the greatest thing in the world because they told them it's guaranteed, which there's no such thing. Right. But I, at that time, now you have to remember also, I was selling my company. So the allocation and classification of my health was probably 10 to 15 years below because of the key man policy. So there were a lot of factors going in. By the way, again, you could see like I'm a lunatic. I have mental problems. Like when I go in to evaluate something, like I have to really understand every aspect of it. And then look, I make an assessment on how comfortable I feel with what something will do for me. And that's the other thing is the fee structure didn't bother me. Do you know why? Because I wasn't focused on the return I was focused on the benefit. And that's another thing is when you build your portfolio, it's not about the optimization on a snapshot basis. It's about what is the long-term goal and will this portfolio or strategy in general allow you to get the benefits on a holistic basis of what you're trying to get to. See, I think that's just to tie this all together. What you were saying earlier is why people fail because you don't, if we had, Rich and Bob and Ryan and Chris on CNBC every day having this conversation, everyone would tune out. They don't want to hear about long-term planning and strategy and discipline. They want to hear about what's Apple going to do tomorrow? When's Google going back up? You know, how much can I get in a cryptocurrency? So everything, every message you get from the financial news channels, from the talking heads, it's all based on short-term trading. You know, how can you fault people for thinking that way? But meanwhile, they wouldn't tune into this. They would, you know, it's like, this is boring. I'm not going to listen to Bob and Rich every day. They might not tune into it on a proactive basis, but you know what they do do? The one thing that is amazing is when you go, if you, and by the way, this is a media guy, right? So for me, SEO, whether it's video or text or anything, people do not understand is every other category in the world has almost an infinite amount of foundational 101 content. You know what's interesting about the financial sector? When you go and Google so much of it, just to get definitions and other things, everything is a lead gen sales funnel for a scam. <laughs> no, I'm not even kidding. The lack of foundational, honest, educational finance 101 is unbelievable. And people do do that. They don't like talking about it, but like when somebody tries to sell them something or whatever, like, oh, my insurance policy is up. What should I be? Like, they, I feel more comfortable going to Google than I do talking to somebody, which makes no sense whatsoever, but they are looking for it. But what nobody does is nobody is offering that. And again, they should have had the education foundationally. Ideally, it happens at a family level, but most families don't have it to give either. But you know, my father couldn't help me think about the way my life is unfolded and other things. And that's not a knock on him. It's just, he had no exposure, education, or the wherewithal to even think about any of those things, right? So, but I don't understand why the leading platforms, especially the leading media platforms, do not provide that level of 101, that honest, not lead gen, not pushing towards like a specific vehicle. It's not a sales process. 
it's a baseline level of understanding so that when I do talk about meme stocks and short squeezes, you're not getting caught up in the hoopla, but you can go, you're educated enough to look at that, that it, it should be on the periphery and you should fundamentally understand that. And that's, I will knock the hell out of media companies for not supplying that to people. Perhaps that explains why the financial services industry fought the fiduciary standard. By the way, that's, you want to talk about, that's a whole nother episode to pulling the string on that. But we all know the structure in the gaming that goes on to allow certain people to be successful and certain other people not to be. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's how Wall Street was set up, right? It was a distribution machine. I mean, it's purely a sales. I mean, that's how this business came about. It was literally just to package products and get them out into uh, individuals' hands. I mean, it, you know, it wasn't built on helping people create wealth, right? That was kind of, and Bob, you were kind of the pioneer of that. That's kind of the antithesis of how you started the business and how it still goes on today, which is kind of remarkable. Well, what is the, the question is, what is the next iteration? Like first it was that, then it became liquidity. And now the pendulum has swung so badly. If you really think about all, like not to go really macro here, right? But if you think about the amount of vehicles that you can go public now with like direct listings and SPACs and other things like that. And then the bad behaviors, not to say that those, the, the vehicle isn't to blame. It's the people that manipulated the vehicle in a horrible way. But at the end of the day, you have more and more companies that have been started that don't deserve to ever go public, that have gone public now. And because the market has swung to a liquidity for the original investors or participants more so than the actual clientele. So what I would love to ask, and you know, Bob, you'll probably have the best purview on this, but like, what is the, that was like, the first was like, oh my God, it's investable capital, not from a bank that somebody can go public, get a little money for themselves, but also really like get money to invest in their business, to level it up. Then became, you know, like, wow, I'm going to go down to the middle class, take on pension funds and actually like support the country and like tie business and society together. What is the 3.0 version of what the market's become is the question. I think it's always evolving. There's certain areas that are expert at it have gotten better. You know, there's more avenues, but you also find that when it goes from, and we handle mostly retail investors and, you know, when an investment is exclusive to the institutional investor and suddenly it becomes available to the retail investor, which happens, right? It evolves like private equity now is a big thing. You know, if private equity is, is coming down to the retail level, means they're no longer able to raise the amount of funds or they've already burnt as many people as they possibly can. And you're now going to take advantage of the small guy. So you always have to be on your guard, right? And, you know, I don't think there's ever any new errors. I don't think there's, you know, anything's ever different. It just evolves. And, you know, the markets evolve, but human nature doesn't change. And that's why you really have to watch yourself. Because people are the same today, I think, as they were 5,000 years ago. And you have good people and you have evil people. And some people who are evil have larceny in their heart. And I've met these, some of these folks, and they just think that's normal. So you've really got to be careful. I agree with everything you said, but there's one additional addendum to it, which scares the crap out of me. There's always, you talked about human nature, and everybody has a little bit of greed to them, right? Everybody wants more. But... Like we were saying before, you add up more bad information, more anomalies being covered, like aberrations being covered, less more immediate gratification, like all from a consumer perspective, right? So there's this perception that everybody can get rich, 
that everybody just wins. Everything always goes up into the right. You know, you heard a lot of young millennials and big Gen Zs go, oh my God, this correction is the greatest thing we've ever seen because it's a buying opportunity because it definitely will go up. And it's like, yes, but like, you don't understand timing. We've also never seen a time where the debt to GDP ratio has been this within our country. And like, there's a lot of layers to everything that makes things more complicated than just that simple look back. But what I was trying to say is, what scares me is there's more dumb money than I think there's ever been before. And there's more vehicles for that dumb money with short-term immediate gratification expectations to get even more hurt. And here's the really scary thing is that's fine if it was 5%, not fine, but it's not good. But if it was 5% of the overall society, that would be fine. But that's such a greater percentage now at this point that it could have a horrible dynamic, just like kick the leg out from underneath an entire societal long-term investment strategy and play. And that's what scares me about this whole thing is that lack of education, that lack of discipline, that lack of reality, no longer participating kind of almost breaks the system. And if the system breaks as bad as it might be or as imperfect as it might be, it's still better than everybody else's system out there. And I worry about that. Well, it also touches back on some of the things you said earlier. You know, we had the financial crisis in 08 and 09, and most people didn't remember the crash of 29 other than they knew it happened, right? My parents grew up in that era and they saw people selling apples on the corner, people not being able to eat or, you know, have a roof over their head. So I think it all comes back to there's really no institutional memory. And it happens in corporate America. It happens with individuals. And unfortunately, Rich, I think some people just have to learn for themselves. I mean, I have a lot of clients who have young kids that are speculating and they just got crushed in some of the stuff that they bought, you know, like the ARC fund. They put all their money in the ARC fund. And, and you know, we just say to them, hey, they got to learn. But Bob, they were having 45% returns. They can keep doing that. <laughs> yeah, but if we all, everyone else knew that was going to happen. They won't make that mistake again. You hope. But like, that's actually a good point too. I mean, Rich, you mentioned about the great financial crisis. It's amazing to me how many people forget how horrific that was. And that was only like a decade ago, right? I mean, it's amazing just how quickly people forget just like how dire that was. I mean, even people that lived through it, right? I mean, that's not even just like the younger generation that didn't actually have to live through it or, or weren't working at the time, but it, it is remarkable. And that was not that long ago. It just doesn't seem that bad in the past. And at the time, it was crazy. I, I remember we thought like, I mean, we started our business right in the middle of the great financial crisis. I raised my first round of capital at that time. Yeah, yeah. It was, I mean, in a way, it was the best time to start a business because you were at the bottom. But I mean, at the same time, it was just like you were just getting one hit after the other. I mean, when the S&P 500 hit 666, a very dynamic number, I mean, we were just sitting around like it just seemed like the earth just like stood still at that moment. But let me even add to that. Foundationally, forget about the derivatives and the packaging and repackaging. The problem was, was it was a credit problem, right? Like you had too many people getting too much credit and then it just got compounded through financial devices, right? But What's amazing is we came out of it and because someone gave, like the government basically gave everybody a blanket rather than the poison that they should have eaten, what they, we did, what was everybody's reaction? We now have, if you think about student loan credit, car credit, leasing credit, credit card debt, 
it is every one of those is at least 10x worse than it was just 13 years ago. So wait a second. It was credit at the foundation of the problem that it got exacerbated by the financial industry. Okay, fine, but it was still credit, but we were not honest. It was the fingers were pointed of the people who packaged those derivatives, not the behavior itself that enabled that to even happen. And what did everybody do? Because they were never held accountable for it. They basically were now like, oh, well, you know what? We got a little burned. Now let's just 10X it. Let's go crazy on credit. It is mind bending to me on a behavioral basis that nobody really, and by the way, that conversation that I just let little, there's not one thing I did, I just said that isn't factual, yet 99% of people either don't understand that conversation or are unwilling to have it. It scares the living out of me. Like I don't understand people's behaviors and the unwillingness to be intellectually honest about our societal flaws, our individual flaws, and they always want to point to the system. Nobody wants to take the individual accountability. Well, you know, Rich, you got to thank your lucky stars that these people exist because without them, without their emotional response and their irresponsible financial behavior, you wouldn't have volatility and you wouldn't have opportunity. So all you can do is say, I worry about you, but meanwhile, it's not going to prevent me from taking advantage of it. And that's what we do at Paying Capital is we look for opportunities because the emotions of human beings is what causes the volatility in the financial system. It's never going to change. 1,000%, but not to go back to math, is when 85% of the people played discipline and 15% were the cowboys, it works. When that 15% becomes 50 or 55%, and by the way, the whole thing breaks. And my point is, is we're moving towards that. It's not, we all, like, yes, on an individual basis, that's what creates opportunity for the disciplined people. However, like I also, I'm an all boats rise guy because of where I came from. I'd rather, I say this all the time as a leader, I'd rather get 90% of the way to goal together than 100% alone. And rather than optimizing my singular portfolio, I'd rather more people, I'll take my ceiling down a little bit personally for everybody's floor to come up. And I would rather see that personally. I love that mentality too. I do love that mentality. And I don't think it's the norm per se. And I think you actually, you get more abundance, right? With that attitude at the end of the day, you probably end up doing better being kind of like Pennywise dollar foolish when it's like all for yourself, as opposed to when you, when you spread it out, ironically, I think you actually end up making out better, you know, probably intangibly, but it, it, you probably do make out better on a lot of fronts. Well, you don't indirectly then have the need for a disproportionate amount of tax increases to actually pull up the bottom. So it's not a direct on a financial basis, but it's an indirect holistic societal and political issue and procedural, like it affects everything, right? Yeah. So I think that maybe to wrap things up, this is, this is going to be really good content, by the way. This is an awesome conversation. So I'm going to totally change gears for the last question of the day. And I'm going to ask you, if you go back to your youth, the first album you heard that like changed your life and changed your thinking and your perception of the world? That's a really good question. I mean, I think, you know, I'm a big music guy and not because I worked at Complex and whatever, but like it's on at my house. Like I have Sonos everywhere, everywhere in my backyard. Like it's a big thing for me and it is a big inspiration. It's very interesting. My father, I'm going to get really psychological here, but my father being a UPS guy really enjoyed Motown. And I'm not taking anything away from like Motown's lyrics or anything like that. But the reason he enjoyed it, because he looked at music as an escape. 
is nothing more fun to dance to. And I'm going to get really crazy here. Like I look back and I was just thinking about this the other day, but like my father like loved Smokey and, and the tops and the temptations and like that, because it's block party music, it's open up a beer, go out, like eat some big ziti, have a dance and have some fun and literally like turn the page on your day or your service job or other things like that. And it's funny. I just honestly never, even though that's, all I grew up around. It's just never the way I thought about things. And I always loved very experimental music. So like my father didn't understand. It's like, I love Wings. Paul McCartney's group with his wife, Linda. Yeah, I did not pick you as a Wings man. There you go. Well, I mean, dude, I was six years old, seven years old. But instead of like, I never acted like a kid. I just, I really didn't. Whether it was because my father didn't really encourage it or my appetite or whatever. It was like, I always like, but I loved that. And I loved the time changes and like the thought, the depth that went into that. Like it's why Good Vibrations is a top three song of all time. People don't understand is the amount of influence that the Beach Boys, which by the way is like, oh, a whole bunch of those idiots who like sang like barbershop quartet from like to like, you know, that's not who they were. Like Brian Wilson is a genius and Good Vibrations set a tone for every, like anything that happened in the seventies is real, like so much of musical, expansion has come from that but for me what really started to matter and it's something that was the first time where like the depth of the music the lyrics the chip on your shoulder because i'm a big you know i've i probably have multiple chips on my shoulders but i grew up in brooklyn like that like mid-80s hip-hop and i'm not saying like i had an a direct thing to like chuck d and it takes a nation millions and the power there's an attitude there that is what really what I and it's what I love about complex and then to get really heady but like the at the birthright and the cultural aspect of hip-hop is it's anger but it's not blind anger if you really listen to a lot of great lyrics it's give me a chance just put me on the same plane and I will eat you for lunch and it's by the way that's me right there like literally there's nobody, and I'm not trying to take anything away from anybody, but like whether it's effort, willingness to do what needs to be done, innovation, iteration, inspiration, motivation of other people, you give me an equal footing and I just believe I will crush you. And there is a fundamental, to me, attitude of what hip hop means. And whether it's Rakim or whether it's uh, Chuck and Public Enemy or other things like that, that visceral attitude and aggression with really intelligent lyrics that have layers to them. Like that time frame of hip hop does not get credit for the, like what it was. This wasn't just street music. These were lyricists that were brilliant and they brought things to light. Maybe not always in the most nuanced way, but really in a fun, in your face way that was super intelligent. And like, to me, that's where music started to really mean so much to me. That was a damn good answer, though. It was a damn good answer. And I love Public Enemies. That's like, yeah. Just the production quality. You never heard anything like it at the time, I felt like. Chuck D's voice was like from another planet. Well, I mean, here's the thing. The other thing is there's so many layers to this conversation. But like what people don't understand about hip hop is it's the first real genre that is not dependent upon samples, but that takes all other aspects and reinvents them. Like that level of reinvention 
from a sound perspective and leveling up and taking something and making it better. Like there's so many layers to this conversation, but here's my last thing is like, that's where you have to be a student. You have to understand the references and go deep rather than be as deep as a puddle the way most people. Like, if you're just a participant and along for the ride and look at everything as entertainment, I got news for you, you're always gonna be a sheep. I like being a herder. Damn, that pretty much sums up like everything we talked about today, right? Like even on the financial side, like going from shallow to deep. That was hot. That was great, Rich. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed episode 94, Pain Points of Wealth. Everything you hear on this podcast, along with some due diligence of your own, can help you get ahead financially, literally at any stage of your journey. This is literally what Bob, Chris, and I do every single day. But if you want a more hands-on approach and you want to get a second opinion on what you're doing right now, you can sign up for our and see if you qualify for our total holistic financial review. Simply go to www.paincm.com slash financial plan. If you have a million dollars saved for your financial independence, we will literally go through every investment you own. In fact, we'll build you your own personalized financial portal and we'll hone in on every single issue you need to address to make sure that you're going to be on your path to financial independence. We're going to look at diversification, what underlying risks you have in your portfolio, or are you sitting with way too much money in cash, paralysis by analysis, as inflation is running hot, trying to figure out what to do. We're going to put together a full investment game plan, show you how to grow your money, but most importantly, protect it over the rest of your life. And we're going to look at diversification. We'll do a deep dive of every investment you own, show you where all those high costs are hitting in your portfolio, and we'll show you how to optimize your portfolio for taxes it's not what you make, it's what you take. We'll give you our full tax playbook and we'll look at income. Income is so critical for your financial independence plan. We'll put together a full income plan so you don't run out of money when you're finally retired. If you want this complimentary review and you've saved over a million dollars, simply go to www.paincm.com slash financial plan to see if you qualify for a free financial review. Thanks for listening to The Pain Points of Wealth. Hopefully you found the ideas discussed in this episode valuable and useful for your own financial journey. You can find out more about Bob, Brian, and Chris's firm, Payne Capital Management, at bebullish.com or through the contact information found in the description of this episode in your podcast player or app. Join us next week for another episode of The Pain Points of Wealth, brought to you by Payne Capital Management. Information provided on today's show is provided for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Oh,